Father, I pray that you would give us hearts of purity and receptiveness. I pray, Father, you would give us minds that are acute and tuned to your word. I pray, Father, you would give us feet that have a desire to take action and to walk with you in the commands you've given us through your word. I pray, Father, that we would have hands to speak to the world by our actions, that we would have hands, Father, to do the work of the ministry and hands, Father, to support and guide others into the knowledge of the truth that we know. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit upon me and upon all that are in this room so that all that we say and do and all that we hear and learn would be according to your will and all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We've left 18, as you know, from last week. We're moving into 19. And this is an interesting chapter. It's certainly a turning point in Luke's Gospel. Before this chapter is over, Jesus will have arrived in Jerusalem, riding in like a conquering king, if you know the story. He will have gone into the temple, and he will have thrown out the money collectors in the temple. And he will have essentially ended the ministry of uh, going to the, those in the nation of Israel who've been overlooked by the leadership and the religious establishment and ministering to them and healing them and, and bringing the gospel to them, that, that part of his ministry will have largely faded. And by the end of chapter 19, he's squarely in the, embroiled in the unending scrutiny that the religious leaders bring upon him while he's in Jerusalem, even as they conspire to put him to death. So we really move out of what has been his ministry up to this point and into that last stage of his ministry where he's really in Jerusalem and uh, uh, awaiting the inevitable conspiracy against him ultimately ending in his death. So this is a pretty dramatic chapter when you look at how it swings in just a few verses. Before we get there, though, before we get to the end of this chapter, Luke has another encounter in the very beginning of this chapter where we're going to study tonight with a needy sinner. And he uses it really as a capstone to that part of the ministry. It's an intriguing story. It's recorded only here in Luke, which is another common thing we've seen in Luke along the way. And it involves a man named Zacchaeus. Let's go into chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Now let's stop there just for a moment. As we ended chapter 18 last week, we were told that Jesus met that blind beggar, as you remember, as he was approaching Jericho. And then now we hear Luke recording a scene where uh, he's actually in the city of Jericho. So it's clearly a scene that follows immediately after the one of the beggar that we studied at the end of chapter 18. It just carries along in that same moment. Remember, as we said before, he's moving toward Jerusalem. He started this way back in chapter 9, actually. And with each step, as he approaches Jerusalem, I want you to remember how the crowds are growing. His notoriety precedes him, and it's almost like a snowball as it goes downhill. He's collecting people to him who are drawn to him for any number of reasons, remember, not exclusively for the right reasons, but whatever the reason, they're attracted to him, and he's pulling them along with them, and he's collecting more as he goes. That's been true really since he was in the Galilee. And now he's moved from the Galilee to Samaria. Now he's down into the hill, hill, foothills around Jerusalem. Jericho, if you look on a map, it's very close to Jerusalem. He's approaching the city that he's intended to go toward all along. And now he's got a huge crowd. And this scene with Zacchaeus gives you, I think, a very clear indication of how huge these crowds are. Because I want you to look at some of what we see happening here from that perspective. The reason why he's attracting crowds, at least in part, is because they, they really hope that he's going to be successful in defeating the Roman occupation. That's, that's an underlying hope within the crowd to varying degrees. That through some kind of rebellion, perhaps, similar to what the Maccabees had done only about 100 years, 150 years earlier, that there would be a, a mass uprising against Rome led by this man, Messiah or not. So the crowds are enthusiastic for the most part. They're curious. They're following him, waiting to see what will happen. And this excitement grows with each step toward Jerusalem because it's assumed that Jerusalem will be the climax. Whatever's going to happen, we know it's going to happen in Jerusalem. And Luke turns our attention to this tax collector, a man named Zacchaeus, we're told. He's a publican, which means that in the hierarchy of, of Jewish authority and within the Jewish culture, This is a man who had the responsibility of collecting taxes on behalf of Rome, but of course in doing so he had made himself an enemy of virtually every Jew 
in the land. He was seen as a traitor in the eyes of his brethren. Someone who was willing to align themselves like a Benedict Arnold with the occupying enemy. But more than even just that, he then becomes their arm of oppression, financially stepping into their lives, taking their money and giving it to their enemies. You couldn't imagine a man more hated by a Jew. I would even go so far as to say that a tax collector would have been more hated in the eyes of many Jews than even Gentiles or Samaritans because a Jew should have known better than to align themselves with the enemy. So he's easily the most despised member of Jewish society. But more even than that, he's a chief tax collector, which means that for this area, whether it's defined as perhaps the city, maybe a region that was greater than the city, I don't know for, for a fact where his boundary would have been, but in any case, he was the number one tax collector, which is ironic for one reason. In past gospel chapters, we've read about how the only friends a tax collector had were other tax collectors, for obvious reasons. This guy doesn't have them. He's their boss. They pay him. So he extorts from them as well as indirectly from the people. So even the other tax collectors wouldn't like this man. He's truly alone in the world. Nobody is his friend more than likely because there's nobody in the world who wouldn't see him as their enemy at, at some level or at the very least a man who could do them harm. That also explains his great wealth because in the tax collecting system that Rome had, in, had imposed on its, on its possessions like Judea, there was a certain tax expected to be paid to Caesar. Whoever was responsible to pay that tax then had to make a living. So they would collect some additional amount for themselves. And then that translated into the ones who worked for them doing the same. And it was like a pyramid scheme. So that this guy standing where he was in the, in the structure was collecting a lot of money for himself. He had a lot of power and he had the army of Rome backing him up to ensure that people paid their taxes. So he's very wealthy more than likely. And he made that immense wealth by taking advantage of people, by essentially taxing them at will, with impunity, and in many cases uh, at, at a level greater than they really should have paid. And, and think about it maybe for a moment if you're one of the Jewish people in this city with, in Jericho. If you're one to get a little angry whenever you realize how much of your pay goes to taxes today, all the taxes of various kinds that you and I... If, that, if you're the kind of person who, when that money is being paid once a year or, or in your weekly paycheck, if you're kind of irritated by that, then I, I want you to consider what kind of anger you might have against a man who took your money on a whim, gave it to your enemy, and, and did so with impunity. Who, if they didn't like you or if they were just having a bad week or needed a little extra money for that house they're trying to buy, might up the taxes for you without any notice at all and you had no power to stop them. I think about the anger that would generate and how that you would just seethe in anger against this man. To top it all off, even his name would have been a source of ridicule in that culture because Zacchaeus is actually an abbreviated form of the name Zechariah. So it's like Steve versus Stephen. And Zechariah means righteous one. So the irony of that man's name would not have been lost on a Jew and would have been another source, I'm sure, of scorn or ridicule for him. All right, so having said all that, like the blind man in that earlier story at the end of chapter 18, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is approaching the city and apparently he's heard something about Jesus. Now, that's an obvious statement because the guy seeks after him to see him. Now, his, now what he's heard may have been nothing more than what everyone else had heard. A man who heals people, a man with miraculous powers, uh, you know, a spectacle. And maybe on that basis alone, he wants to see the man. Now, as the story plays out, it becomes obvious that there's more to Zacchaeus' interest than just the spectacle. But in its initial stage, maybe that was all there was to it. Like the beggar who heard the crowd passing by and wanted to know what was going on. That could have been the, the extent of his interest early on. And the story is interesting right up from the very beginning because we hear that this man is so short that he can't see Christ through the crowd. Now that tells us something not only about Zacchaeus, but it tells us a lot about the crowd. Because I want you to, if you've been to a parade, for example, how hard is it for you, regardless of your height, to find a spot along the road from which you can see the activity of the parade? Now, you may come to a certain point on the line and not find room, right? It may be stacked two or three people deep, and if you're short, you can't see through the people. So what do you do? You go left or you go right. You move along the line until you find an opening or until you find the crowd less dense. By the fact that Zacchaeus would climb a tree tells us something about Zacchaeus, and we'll learn that more in a minute. But in the meantime, it tells us a lot about the size of the crowd. He couldn't go left. He couldn't go right. He had no choice but to go up. And I don't think that's just because it was a convenient thing to do. The guy's not five years old. 
as an adult male in Jewish society, climbing this tree was a tremendous sign of, of humiliation for him or, or willingness to be humiliated. There are several things Jewish men, many things Jewish men would never do. We've talked about this in the past when we looked at the prodigal son. One is that you never show your legs. Men wore long tunics and they never ran because to run in a long tunic required lifting it and to show your legs was shameful. And we talked a lot about that if you remember back in chapter 16 of Luke. So to, to climb a tree not only required that he show his legs, but his backside too. This is a shame of, of extreme proportions for this man. It basically shows you that he couldn't care less what people thought of him at that point. He was more interested in getting a good look at Christ. And he had no option, as it apparently seems to be, to move left or right. He had only one option to go up. So it tells us the size of this crowd. I have to imagine that in the city of Jericho at this point, the, the street that Christ is walking on is lined with people, several people deep, for the length of the city. That may be an exaggeration, but not by much. So you're talking about thousands of people now, and I don't mean just the ones who are following him. Obviously, there's a crowd there as well, but just the ones who have come out to see him. This is a, another reason why we can understand the Jewish leaders feeling so threatened by what Christ represented to them as he approached the city. This man had, in terms of numbers of people, the real potential to upset politically Judea had he had the wherewithal to marshal that effort in a, in a way that clearly was not Christ's mission. He had a different idea. So that tells us a little bit about Zacchaeus and his interests. It tells us a little bit about his circumstances in that moment. So he climbs a tree to catch a glimpse. And the scene here, I think, is, is really compelling as you begin to imagine it in your mind for just a moment. We'll all imagine it, I guess, a little differently. But consider for a moment Zacchaeus as a man in that culture. Knowing all that we know about tax collectors and about this particular tax collector, he's a pariah in this community. He's alone. More than likely, he's completely isolated. No one wants to be friends with him. No one would permit anyone else to be friends with him. And he's been trying to break through this crowd to see Jesus. How likely do you think the crowd is to yield to him so that he can get a good look? You know, they're more than likely going to give him an elbow like this as he tries to get near them. There's no interest in helping this man. So he does the only thing he can do. He climbs this tree. And as simple as this sounds, we've said already, this is an extraordinary kind of behavior on his part. And it's remarkable even more because what it does is it, it really puts into perspective his position in that culture. Here he is on the top of a tree, away from the crowd, separated, alone, humiliated, disgraced. By the way he's positioned himself as Christ walks by, he's a perfect picture of the way, in reality, he lives his life in that culture. Separate, alone, away from everyone else, and disgraced because of it. But it also reveals his heart. And I think as the story evolves here in the following verses, you'll see that even more clearly. But... I think it's clear enough that what we know of this man already tells us that he is filled with a childlike kind of excitement over the fact that Christ is approaching that city. And not necessarily because he has a full insight about who he is in, in this early moment or what he brings. Ultimately, he comes to that, under, that understanding as we see in the story. But perhaps his first interest is no different than the beggar, a childlike interest. I say childlike because in that day and age, the only one who climbed trees were children. Well, for that matter, much like you and I today. When's the last time any of you climbed a tree? But if you did it today, if you saw a 40, 50, 60-year-old man climb a tree in a tunic, it'd make you look twice, wouldn't it? It's that kind of excitement that tells us something about the man's heart, even as Jesus approaches in this moment. So even at this early point, I think the story is, is remarkably similar to the theme of the previous chapter. You remember that chapter? We haven't been away from it but a week, and hopefully you still remember that theme was the nature of saving faith. That as chapter 18 unveiled itself, we saw Jesus in Luke's narrative taking us through, walking us through the principles of salvation as they would now apply in this church age, as they've always applied truthfully, but now they would be particularly evident in the way the gospel message would be preached to the world. And Jesus, through Luke, wants to teach on the nature of that faith. And this story is a natural extension of it, but it's also a capstone. It's also a concluding moment. If chapter 18 showed us the nature of saving faith through a series of examples ultimately culminating with the blind beggar, chapter 19 begins with another example in the same vein, but it's notable because it's the last one. It's the final example. It's the touchstone example that leads us from this moment into the latter stages of Jesus' ministry. We'll look at that here more in a moment. Let's look at verses 5 and onward. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and gladly uh, and received him gladly. 
When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is approaching. Zacchaeus is up in the sycamore tree. I would imagine, for my sake anyway, I see a crowd three or four or five deep. I see a tree somewhere behind the crowd, maybe not very close, maybe a, a distance away. Zacchaeus alone up in this tree. Jesus walking by, but, but close enough that they can hear each other because clearly Jesus calls out to the man. And he calls out saying, come down quickly. I have to stay at your house. And more importantly, he calls the man by name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down quickly. What an astonishing thing to say when you consider it. First of all, Jesus knew the man's name. Now, that's obvious enough that probably caught your attention like it would have mine. And he says it without ever having met him. It's a clear sign of Christ's divinity. You know, it's funny to me how often people will go to Scripture and, and make claims about the fact that in the Gospels themselves, you don't see any proof that Jesus was divine. And yet it's almost in every verse. You almost wonder what book they read. And here's just a simple example in passing. How else would you explain Christ knowing this man's name to call out to him? And then can you imagine the expression on Zacchaeus' face? He's in the tree. Number one, Jesus talks to him. Number two, he calls him by name. That alone would have had me almost fallen out of the tree. And then on top of that, he says, come down, I'm staying at your house. And I don't just mean for the fact that it's a surprise to hear Jesus talk to him. I'm talking more now about the fact that Jesus would be willing to stay at his house. Of all men, Jesus was willing to stay in this man's house. I, I have a hard time imagining what must have been on Zacchaeus' face, except when it says, hurry down, I have to imagine he almost fell down as he got out of that tree. I'm imagining it's about as fast as he ever did climb out of a tree to get to Christ. Now, the more interesting thing to imagine, the thing I had more fun with in my mind was, imagine the crowd in that moment. Imagine the faces of the crowd who may not even realize he's in the tree, who are still focused on Christ. They see Christ looking up over their heads and calling out on Zacchaeus. Now, imagine the scene for a moment from Zacchaeus' perspective. About 4,000 faces all turn and look at him simultaneously like, Zacchaeus, who's the same one we know? And Zacchaeus shifting his eyes and thinking, is he talking to me? <laughs> and jumping down from the tree. I mean, it's, it's just, there's so much humor to me as I study the gospel in moments like this that, to my thinking anyway, add to the reality of what was really going on. It's not... You ever watch those movies like uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told, made back in the 50s? Not to malign the movie, but it doesn't look realistic to me. Have you ever watched that movie? It's, it's so unrealistic in the way the, the people talk and move, and it's like they're all dreamy, and Christ is like he's spaced out. Every time you look at him, his eyes are spinning in that movie. I mean, really. The guy portrayed Christ in that movie as if he's drugged, you know? And that's not the, you know what, Christ was so much like you and I that one of the things, one of the charges that the Pharisees leveled against him was that he was a drunkard. Now, he wasn't, but that accusation could only have had value to the Pharisees if it stood a chance of being accepted by the people, which tells me that they had, there was enough about Christ's personality and his nature that some people might think twice about that accusation and consider it maybe to be true. That he was so gregarious, fun-loving, outward, in his nature, that you could call him a drunkard and someone might wonder if it's true. He wasn't spaced out. And I have to imagine in this moment he played this to some effect for the purpose of the humor in it or for the, for the humanity of it. So what did Jesus say to this man? Well, one commentator has said that verse 5 in the verses we just read is a perfect representation of God's sovereignty in salvation. While verse 6 is a perfect representation of man's responsibility to respond to God's call. And I would agree. But I would also add that Jesus' statement of this man emphasizes that the outcome of this situation was never in doubt. Jesus calls the man by name. He tells him to hurry. He says, I'm going to stay at your house. But he says, I must stay at your house. Jesus doesn't request it. He doesn't say, may I stay at your house? He states it as a matter of fact. It has been determined that I'm going to stay at your house. And Zacchaeus' response, though his responsibility, was never in doubt. 
the nature of the call of the gospel. That as God preaches, as God's word is preached and the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of the listener, there is a response because the power of God is in his word to call men and women to faith. But it does not mean that there is not a response required. It simply means that God is the one who enables that response. So there's a famous 18th century preacher named George Whitefield who said it this way. He says, With what different emotions of heart may we suppose Zacchaeus received this invitation? Think you not that he was surprised to hear Jesus Christ call him by name? And not only so, but invite him to his house? Surely, thinks Zacchaeus, I dream. It cannot be. How should he know me? I never saw him before. Besides, I shall undergo much contempt if I receive him under my roof. Thus I say, may we suppose Zacchaeus thought within himself, but what says the scripture? It says, I will make a willing people in the day of my power. With this outward call, there was efficacious power from God, which sweetly overruled his natural will. And therefore, verse 6, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully, not only into his house, but also into his heart. Thus it is that God brings home his children. He calls them by name, by his word or providence. He speaks to them also by his spirit. Thereby they are enabled to open their hearts and are made willing to receive the king of glory. Let us not entirely condemn people that come under the word out of, a, out of no better principle than curiosity because who knows but God may call them. It is good to be where the Lord is passing by. Zacchaeus had an interest but that interest never came any closer than sitting in a tree some distance from where Christ was passing by. And without a word spoken to Christ, Christ initiated the call by name and told him, I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus' response was to hurry down and receive him joyfully. It's a good picture of how Christ is calling the lost. Remember the last verse I read? I came to seek and save the lost. Who does the seeking? Christ. Who does the saving? Christ. Who gets the glory? Christ. We were the ones who deserved punishment, rightly condemned before God, and yet we received mercy just as Zacchaeus did. And then look at the man's reaction to Jesus' mercy. Immediately it says in the scripture he addresses him as Lord. Now, this term can mean nothing more than just respect. It's a common term in that day. But in terms of all that's said in these verses, in the context of the story itself, I think it makes it clear this term had deeper meaning for Zacchaeus than simply a term of respect. I think he's addressing him here as Lord in the sense of Messiah. And he's come to believe Jesus is the Messiah as a result of this simple encounter. It says that Zacchaeus stops at the point where Jesus and he begin to walk, but the crowd begins to grumble. So he's received him joyfully, begins to take him to his home, and there's a sense here that the crowd now is beginning to grumble, and Zacchaeus in this moment recognizes their response. I mean, he could have anticipated it for that matter. And he stops. I get the impression here that as he took note of that crowd's reaction, he felt some need to respond publicly to it, right then and there. You know, he might have been prone to respond in anger or in malice. This is none of your business. Something that pushed them away. What he does instead, though, is completely contrary to his old nature. To the nature that this man would have inevitably had as a tax collector, that nature would have been one to respond in malice. What does he do instead, though? He says, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. Think about the commitment that implies. Number one, he's wealthy, but forget how much he had. Put it in your own context. Take the wealth you have in whatever form it is and tell me that you're willing to give half of it away as a result of being saved. Not as a necessity, not as a means of buying your salvation. That's already happened. The guy's saved. He's called him Lord. He's received Christ's invitation. Now he says... I want to give half of my possessions away. Who in here did that? And I'm not saying you have to. But I want you to consider what it meant that this man did that. And I would say from this text itself, we take on its face that he meant this statement and he carried it out. That's a substantial commitment. What if in the church today, and not that this would be right, mind you, but what if we were to mandate that for those who come to Christ? How many would think that a price too great to pay? Again, it would not be the right thing to do, but my point is that it shows a degree of commitment in this man's heart, a degree of change in his nature that may exceed what you and I have experienced in our own walk and in the things we've been willing to do for the name of Christ. And I'm not setting a litmus test or a rule. You understand that. I'm simply suggesting it tells us a lot about the nature of this man's changed heart. 
Then he goes even further. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, I will repay four times what I owe. What do you think the odds are that a tax collector has defrauded somebody? <laughs> right? Under the law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, or in actually Exodus 22, but it's, re- it's repeated in, in other ways in Deuteronomy, a man who stole somebody else's property was required to return it and give back double. So if you took someone's goat, you gave the goat back plus a goat. So you gave back the original one, and you gave back one of your own. That was the penalty that was often required for someone who was found guilty of stealing. But Zacchaeus here offers to repay fourfold, which indicate, to me that indicates the degree of his repentance, because what he's actually proposing to do here is go well beyond what the law would have required for someone in his situation. It's not just an arbitrary number. He's doubled what he's required to do under the law. Back to the original question. Why did he stop then to do this in public, to make these public pronouncements about uh, what he was now willing to do on the basis of his faith in Christ? Well, there's at least two reasons that I think of that come to mind for me. First, I think his heart is heavy here with his sin. You know, one of the consequences of a new heart is repentance. You repent and believe. You recognize your error, not just in some simple sense, I made a mistake, I did something wrong. No, in the fundamental sense. I recognize the error of living a life dependent on my own righteousness to please God, on my own works, on my own abilities. I have come around to believing that I am worth nothing to God and only by His grace may I be saved. That's what repentance means when it comes down to repentance and belief, the salvation moment kind of repentance. But that, kind, that, that moment of repentance carries with it an ongoing sanctifying repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize on a daily basis the little errors of life, the sins that we commit on a regular basis even after we are saved. And in that recognition, in that conviction, we are brought to a repentance of those issues in our life and a desire to move beyond them because of what God has done in our heart. Now that capability to know your mistakes, repent of them, and to move past them is the the Spirit working in you. It is impossible for a sinner to do that in any real sense before they have faith. They'll simply replace one sin for another. Their heart is incapable of pleasing God. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But upon faith, we now have in us the Spirit, the ability now through the Spirit to change by our agreement with the Spirit's conviction. This man is doing that. The Spirit is convicting him in the moment against a crowd. Remember, this is the crowd that's grumbling about him and his response to them is to give back to them what he owes, not to reach out in malice or or to strike out in malice, but to reach out in love. That capacity is a new thing for this man and it is directly attributable to the Holy Spirit in him. So his first, I think the true encounter with the Lord prompted a genuine heartfelt repentance of sin. And the natural result then is this confession and this willingness to pay restitution. There's a second reason, though, that I think he's doing it here and now in this public way. I think he's making a public record of his changed heart. Remember the story I told last week about how, in my own walk, I had come to a saving faith, but I had not yet made any public profession of that faith. I had talked to perhaps my wife or to uh, individuals here and there, but I had not done a public confession, which I believe Scripture expects of a believer. Public in some sense. I don't mean to say you have to get up on a stage, but more than to yourself. I hadn't had that opportunity. If you remember how I told the story last week that God gave me that opportunity through how he brought me into contact with witnesses, with uh, evangelists who witnessed to me, but in response to their witnessing, I could turn back to them and make my confession. That was God's grace to me for an opportunity to confess his name to somebody else. I think that's what Zacchaeus is doing here. Now, we don't hear the words of him saying, Jesus is Lord and I trust in him for my salvation. I'm not saying that those words weren't said somewhere along the way, but just in the fact that he was willing to take this unusual step in a public way to confess his sin and offer restitution, I think is the evidence of the new heart that he is making in a public uh, arena. Remember the blind beggar from the end of chapter 18? A changed heart will always bring evidence. And for that blind beggar, it was to follow Christ, to give him glory, and for others to praise God because of this man's salvation. That was the natural result we should expect, the fruit that should come from a changed heart. In this case, the evidence is this man's changed attitude toward his wealth and his treatment of others. It reminds me of another story Jesus taught a few chapters back of the tax collector and the Pharisee, where he contrasts the two men who go in to pray, one with a true repentant heart, the other one with merely an attempt to pray to himself for the sake of show. It is the fact that 
that money now has no longer had a grasp on this man, but rather he is willing to give it up if necessary to please his Lord. That is further evidence of his changed heart. Going back to George Whitefield for just one more sentence, he says it this way. He says, I affirm that we are saved by grace and that we are justified by faith alone. But I also affirm that faith must be evidenced by good works where there is an opportunity of performing them. Which is what James says in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead being by itself. Meaning, it's not true faith. It's a false confession. If it never produces any outward visible sign of a changed heart, there is no changed heart. Because out of the heart flows the the nature of that person. And if the nature of the new changed heart looks indistinguishable from the nature that once was there with the old heart, then the heart's not different. And I like the way Whitefield caveats it. He says, where there is an opportunity of performing them. Clearly, where there may not be opportunity for one reason or another, it's understandable. But where there is, there should be. And then Jesus confirms the result. Luke captures his statement here where he says, salvation has come to this man's house. Lest we have any doubt about the nature of this man, Jesus clears that up for us. And he says, he too is a child of Abraham. Now that last statement should puzzle some people anyway. Because this man is a descendant of Abraham. As a Jew, he would have been a descendant of Abraham. Physically. So to say that he is now a child of Abraham is a strange thing to say. How is it that he's only now a child of Abraham? Well, you might know already. The answer is found in Paul's letters. First in Romans. Let me read you a few verses out of Romans. First in chapter 2, verse 28. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision that is, is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. He goes on later in that same letter in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Paul's letter here, and you may know this as I hope you do already because it's foundational in our faith, but what Paul is teaching here very simply is that God does not consider those who are physically born out of Abraham's line to be the descendants of Israel and therefore worthy of its promises, rather only those who are spiritually descended from Abraham. And he illustrates this by, by mentioning the fact that Abraham had two sons. He had both Ishmael and Isaac. And yet only through Isaac are the promises given to the nation of Israel. So if someone were to stand on their physical descendancy as reason to trust they will inherit God's promises, if anyone were to say, I can be assured of receiving the promises God gave to the nation of Israel because I happen to be physically born from Abraham, Paul is able to disprove that thought merely by mentioning that there was Ishmael, by the way. If physically descending from Abraham were good enough to be in God's family, then everyone who's descended from Ishmael should expect the same privilege, right? But we know they don't out of Scripture. So it is not merely who physically descends from Abraham who should expect to receive the promises. It is who is in the family of God by spirit, not by flesh. And those who are in the family of God by faith, we are told, become members of his family by spirit and are attributed to the line of Abraham, and therefore we receive the promises of Abraham. Now, this is not to say that we are Israel. That's a different issue altogether. We are Gentiles. We know that already. But we also know that, Rome, that Paul tells us later in, in the letter of Romans that we've been grafted into the root, which is Israel, by faith, and then inherit the promises they were given by faith. So this is the point Christ is making to Zacchaeus. Quite ironically, when you consider his audience in the moment, He's saying, only now is this man a member of God's family as a son of Abraham, which to a crowd may have seemed a strange statement, for they assumed he already was. And then Luke ends this story in verse 10 with that statement that I mentioned earlier. This is a statement, by the way, that more than a few commentators have said is the key verse in Luke's gospel. If you wanted the topical verse for Luke's gospel, it's this verse. This verse in one sentence sums up why Luke wrote the gospel that he wrote to explain to us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's the principle of his ministry. You know, if you think of it from the standpoint of a touchstone verse like John, John's gospel has the touchstone verse of 316, right? 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. That is the verse that you think of when you think of John. Well, Luke doesn't have quite the same notoriety, but this should be the verse you think of when you think of Luke. It concisely, I think, sums up the point of his gospel. First, that Jesus came to earth for this particular reason, this one mission, to seek and save the lost, not to be lifted up as king in this, in this time. That, wait, that awaits for another time. Not to conquer Rome. Not to make everyone rich. Not to heal everyone who was sick. But to seek and save the lost. And everything else he did was a means toward this end. So whatever reason you might give for why he did all that he did in his ministry, from his teaching to his miracles to the way he conducted himself in the culture to the way he went to the cross, all of that is done for this reason, for the verse that we, uh, in verse 10, for the reasons in verse 10. And Zacchaeus' reaction expresses that mission perfectly. It's almost as if Zacchaeus' conversion is a picture of the mission in a nutshell. And that Luke feels that Perhaps part of Jesus' ministry here, is, as it ends, is best captured by this moment. So that as he begins to wind up this part of Jesus' ministry and move to the next stage here, the last stage, he includes this moment, only Luke does this, of Zacchaeus, so that we get this little capsule picture of Jesus' mission. And then to put a kind of a period to the end of it, he gives us verse 10. That's why Jesus came. Zacchaeus is a perfect picture of that. It's also, I think, a fitting way that Luke introduces the next stage of his narrative. And the next stage here is a parable. We'll cover that and then we'll end. The parable here is really, it's a, it's a beautiful juncture. If verse 10 sums up the reason Jesus came and his ministry to seek and save, that having now kind of wrapped up, what's remaining is a, a visit to the cross. This parable introduces that now very nicely. Look at the parable as we go forward. Verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves, gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We'll pause there just for a minute. As we always want to do with parables, we need to carefully observe the pieces here, the players, make sure we get straight who's who and what they're doing. This one's a little easier in that Luke himself explains the purpose of it, which gives us a good guide to understanding who's who. He says that this, perp, that this parable was told by Christ as he approached Jerusalem because he wanted to set straight in the minds of the people and probably primarily in the disciples what his purpose was in arriving at Jerusalem. Because as we just heard, the crowd's assumption is he's going to set up his kingdom. It's any moment now. The Messiah is here. He's about to reign. Uh, we've already covered this, of course, but in chapters 11, 12, and 13, we saw Jesus withdraw the offer of the kingdom. Having been rejected, he says, your time for that opportunity has come to an end. And ever since then, he's been preparing his disciples for their mission in his absence, and he's been moving toward the cross. Yet the perception hasn't changed in the crowd overall. They still see him as coming to reign. So this is being told to set that straight. Then there's this nobleman, we're told, in the parable itself. He goes to a distant kingdom to receive a kingdom and then return. And I think it's clear enough, even before we go any further, that the nobleman is Jesus himself. The whole idea of him leaving and coming back is the best clue to that. Never mind the fact that as a nobleman, that would also imply he's the king. He's someone with a, a, a kingdom or about to receive a kingdom, as it says here. And even before we go any further, I think it's interesting to note here that he says he's going to receive his kingdom while he's away. I mean, when you consider what we know of Christ's ministry, both in his first coming, ultimately in his second coming, if I had asked you before we read this parable, when does Jesus receive his kingdom? The answer I assume I would have had for most of you was, well, upon his second coming. But if the parable is to be understood, he has it now. Or at the very least, he gets it while he's away, even if it hasn't happened yet. When he comes back, he's already the owner of the kingdom that he's coming to rule over. So how does that happen? The Bible teaches exactly what is taught in this parable. First Peter chapter 3, verse 22, as he's talking about Christ, he, Peter says he is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subject, subjected to him. 
and there's other verses in Hebrews particularly, but what Second Peter, the letter here in First Peter rather, is teaching, his ascension into heaven came after all was put in subjection to him. So while he's away, he's already over all that is his kingdom. Now why is that? How do we reconcile that with the world we see around us today? I don't see him ruling, or do we? At the moment Queen Elizabeth were to die, for example, her son is king. But there will still be an t- interval of time before he is crowned as such. They will have to set up the pomp and circumstance of the ceremony, of scheduling all that goes into it and preparing all the, the implements for it and of sending out the invitations to make it you know, an official pageant and, and you know, put it all together. They may take as long as six months to a year to coronate the king. Is he any less king? No. In the meantime, is he any less king? No. Is he any less capable of ruling? No. But typically, you won't see him take a stately ruling role until after the coronation. You won't see him receiving other heads of state. You won't see him traveling abroad to be the, 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 the representative of the state of Britain. He will remain in a somewhat secluded role off the main stage awaiting his coronation because that's protocol. But he's no less king. Now that example has its limits when I go to apply it to Christ, but I want you to see that point that as Christ rules now through the hearts of men here, and in general, as God, he is sovereign over his creation, doing whatever he wills with it at any time. Meanwhile, he has chosen not to come into this world and express his authority in this world in an overt way, in a, in a physical way. He awaits for a future day to do that, a day that the Father has appointed, but he is no less king even as he awaits that day. There is a coronation ceremony of sorts that's described in chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation. And when you read those chapters, what you discover, among other things, is that coronation ceremony awaits guests, and more particularly, a bride who will be wedded to him in that moment. So in short, his coronation awaits us. Until the church is present in its full form, all saints from all time in the church, there is no coronation. But once we arrive, the coronation ensues, and then shortly thereafter, he returns to reign, we returning with him. You can see that in chapter 19. That's the basis on which the parable here can say he's going away to receive his kingdom. And while he's away, we hear that his subjects are to serve his interests. He he grants to each some measure of provision. Now, these are his slaves, as the parable points out. They get a provision for the purpose of conducting affairs in his absence. A mina, by the way, represents about three months' wages in that day. Not a fortune, But maybe like you and I would think today, if I gave you three months of your salary right now, it's enough money that you think twice about how you use it. Right? It's not pocket change, at least not for me. It's real money. But on the other hand, it doesn't fundamentally change your life, right? You don't quit your job because I gave you three months. I hope you don't quit your job because I gave you three months' salary, right? Just the fact that he's talking here about leaving and having somebody do his business while he's gone reinforces for the moment the fact that the kingdom is delayed. So even just in that piece alone, Jesus is making the point that Luke draws out as he introduces the parable. The kingdom is not coming right now. I've got to leave for a while. And you're going to be doing business in my absence. Now, he doesn't rest on that point alone. The parable continues beyond that. But even in that fact alone, you get to see that there will be a delay in the kingdom being set up. In the meantime, a revolt takes place. Now, it's interesting. The revolt here is among the citizens, not the slaves. This is a different group of people. The slaves, we can fairly assume to be you and I, the believer, the one who in Christ's absence joins the family of God by faith, becomes a member of the church, universal. We are bondservants, slaves to Christ, as the scriptures describe us. But there are citizens here of the kingdom, by birthright, are included in the kingdom or should be included in the kingdom. But we're told here they revolt. They're demanding that this nobleman would not rule over them. And of course, the slaves as believers mean that the citizens are the people of Israel in his day. The nation of Israel in that day who were intended to receive the king, they are the people for whom the king came. They are the people to whom the king was promised. They are the true inheritors of the kingdom, if you will. They're the citizens by birthright. But again, it's a spiritual birthright, not a physical birthright. And their unwillingness to receive Christ into their heart in his day is equivalent to a citizen revolting against the nobleman that had been promised to them. So, in his absence, there is this revolt. They send a delegation to him 
to tell them of their desire that he would not rule. Think about that, though. The citizens don't go. They send a delegation. Well, who is the delegation for the citizenry? The leaders of the citizenry or the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day. So here we can see played out in this parable what we already studied back in chapter 10, 11, and particularly 12 and 13. In those chapters where we see Jesus pronounce to the leaders that their people, that generation, would be forever rejected because of their refusal to accept him. He wasn't talking to every man, woman, and child in the nation of Israel in that day because he couldn't physically do that, but it was sufficient for him to communicate to them through their leadership because their leadership had the authority to accept him or reject him, just as this delegation is going after him to announce the intentions of the citizens. I want you to look at verses 15 through the end of the parable here. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, you, you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. But he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you, know, did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master... He has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to rule, reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Well, for as long as those verses are, it's actually a pretty simple picture to understand what's going on. So we can summarize it in fairly short order. First of all, keep your character straight from the previous verses we already studied. We know... It's Jesus here returning to uh, receive his kingdom or to rule now that he's received his kingdom. This is, as we already know, Christ's return to earth, his second coming. And then what we see happening upon his second coming is something that we hear out of Scripture described as the judgment seat of Christ. This is a judgment moment for believers, which are the slaves in this parable. Now, what do I mean by judgment? Well, we all know there is a judgment coming. We hear about Christ being judge of the living and the dead, and he will come back to judge the world, etc. What we need to be careful about as we understand the scriptures is to know that there are really two judgments in view in scripture. Christ is the judge of all. He, he is the one to conduct all judgments. God has given, the God the Father has given his son that uh, authority. But there are two moments of judgment in Scripture. There is a judgment for the believer, and there is a judgment for the unbeliever. These are distinctly different moments, both in time and in nature. We call the one for believers the judgment seat of Christ. Scripture calls the one for the unbelievers the great white throne judgment, which you can see in chapters 21, 22, of, or chapter 20, rather, of Revelation. The difference is fundamental. One is a judgment for the purpose of determining reward, the other is a judgment on the basis of pronouncing sentence against sin, principally the sin of unbelief. So one is intent on determining your worth to Christ as a believer and therefore the rewards that will ensue because of your service to him. The other is designed to reflect God's wrath against someone who by their life is worthy of death because of the wages of sin. This is the prior judgment. This is the judgment seat of Christ being described here, at least in bulk. There is the one statement at the end as you hear it spoken in verse 27. That's not the great white throne judgment itself. That's a preceding moment, which we'll cover in a second. But for the most part, this is a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. Before we even describe it any further, I want you to understand this is a moment that is every bit real as the day you just lived today. It will happen for all who believe in Christ you will stand before Christ and experience this moment. Scripture, on the authority of Scripture, I can tell you, that will happen if you are a believer. If you're an unbeliever, you won't be here, but you'll wish you were. Because your judgment is far, far worse. Because, as I said, this is not a judgment for the purpose of 
exacting punishment. It is a judgment for the purpose of determining a degree of reward appropriate for the service we conducted in this time he gave us in our walk as, as Christians today. Paul describes this moment, by the way, in greater detail in his third chapter of 1 Corinthians and in his fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, if you want to look at them later. So similar to Matthew's parable about the talents, you may have heard that parable of the talents from Matthew's gospel. This is similar to that same kind of parable. Each slave here, or each believer, has a life in this age, as they walk the earth in their life on this, on this planet, to invest with various talents and various gifts having been given to them by God, and a certain amount of time and a certain amount of opportunity. So that's what we're all given. We're all given a certain amount of time on the earth. We're all given certain opportunities in our walk. We're gifted spiritually in certain ways, and we have certain natural talents. That's our starting point. That's our ten minus in whatever way it, it takes. Matthew's Gospel goes on to suggest that for different people, there's different degrees of, of that kind of provision. More minus, if you will, for some than to others. But we are measured by what we do with what we're given, not in some absolute sense against one another. So that's, what we're, that's where we all start. And depending on what we have been given and what we do with it, will determine our reward at that judgment moment. Not all rewards are going to be equal. That's another fundamental principle here as you see the outcome, some receiving more, some receiving less. On the basis of what they did, it is not the case that we all die, receive our wings and our harp and float up into the clouds and just live in blissful equality with one another. That is not the heaven of the, of the Bible. It is heaven. It is an eternity with Christ, which is far, far better than the alternative. But it is, it is not an equality that many are prone to assume. And most important to me, anyway, reward is consistently expressed in Scripture, and it's certainly that case here, consistently expressed as greater opportunity to serve. Reward is in the context of responsibility. There's very little, if anything, that you can find in Scripture to equate reward to materialism in any sense. Now, I'm not saying that's precluded, I'm just saying that I find it interesting that whenever this issue comes up in Scripture, the reward is always expressed in terms of opportunity to serve, which seems to tell me that it is the joy of being in Christ's presence through service that we should be seeking even now. That, in other words, if it is to say that in heaven, greater reward comes down to greater opportunities to serve Him, then what does that say about what we should see as joy in our walk today? More money? Some would have you believe that. I see it in the same terms. Why would it be any different? The joy of serving him now is fundamentally the same as the joy to serve him later. And what you're able to do for him now is a direct determiner of what you will be given an opportunity to do in that future time. He is looking for those who are willing to serve him, to take up your cross and follow him. I mean, how many different ways is it said in Scripture, right? So that is the expectation that he places on those while he's gone, and that is the moment of judgment for reward that we should all experience at some point and should look forward to and should be motivated by in the meantime. And the way I like to put it is this. In a very real sense, we are all working now in the form of an audition to earn a bigger part in the next production. So if you knew that was what you were doing, how hard would you be working for that audition? Most interesting is, to me is the one slave at the end who does nothing but hide his mina in his handkerchief. This slave uses as his excuse for his behavior, as his excuse for his inaction, his fear of the master. He says, you are someone who demands much. In fact, he, he uses this expression, you gather where you did not sow. That's a, it's a euphemistic expression common in the Hebrew uh, culture for that day that said, this is the kind of man who had an expectation of return even where others might not have expected to find anything. This is the kind of guy that his standards and his demands for, for what he expected were so high that he would even go looking for grain at a place in the field where he knows he didn't put any seed. But he's so demanding, he has such high expectations that he's even willing to go search for grain in a place where he himself didn't even put any seed. That's someone who has pretty high expectations, isn't it? And that kind of a fear drove this man to say, I'd rather not do anything with this mina. I just want to be able to give it back to him next time I see him. Because I'm afraid that if I were to do anything with it and fail, that his exacting nature would become wrath against me. That's the implication here. 
that a failure in any form to do what I should do with what he's giving me would reflect poorly on me. And because it would reflect poorly on me, he'd be angry at me. So I'm better off doing nothing than taking that risk. That's a completely backwards understanding of why you've been gifted. If you were to go out in some form of ministry in your own walk and find success, who would you credit? Well, if you had any sense of the truth of the scriptures, you'd know immediately that's God's work in me. I deserve no credit for that, for it wasn't even by my power that I did it. So why is it that if you've been gifted and called into some walk of ministry that you would use as an excuse not to if you're a failure? If your efforts are true and your fruit is nil, who does that say made that decision? Self-evidently, the same one who would have been credited if you had been successful. If it's his power in you to do whatever it is you do, then it is always to his credit or otherwise if nothing happens, if something happens or if nothing happens, which is the reason why he says by your own standard you will be measured. You know I was exacting, you know I had high demands, and you did nothing. So you're worthy of no trust. That's the basic point here. You can't use, we can't use, a fear of failure in some sense as an excuse not to act in the call of the gospel. And I don't mean act in a professional context necessarily. You know what that means. In any context where God calls you and gifts you. If your fear is, I can't do any good, I won't have any success, I can knock on that door and evangelize, but who's going to believe my message? If you got what you wanted, you wouldn't credit yourself, so why do you blame yourself? It's always God at work one way or the other. So he, can't, he does not let that excuse stand before him. And that will be the same on the day of judgment, I'm convinced. And look what he does. He says, the little responsibility you were given in this age is going to be withheld from you in the next. Think of it in these terms. As a believer today, we have less opportunity to do what God wants us to do than we will expect to have in the next age for any number of reasons. Number one, in the next age, we will be incorruptible without sin. In the next age, we will have the full knowledge of God is granted to us through that experience of being in his presence and of seeing him reign with us. We'll have his full authority as his agents on earth. We'll have it there without the encumbrance of sin and without the enemy working against us. We have a little bit now compared to what we will have then. And he says, if you won't do with what you've been given now, I'm not going to entrust you with greater later. What little you had now won't even exist for you there. But on the other hand, those who step up to the opportunities he grants you now we'll see a commensurately greater opportunity to reign with him in the next time. And that is something we should all seek. I often joke about the fact that some people would say, well, I really don't want to be in management anyway. But in this context, you do, because Scripture makes it a goal for us all. Finally, the concluding statement in verse 27, he says, to those who reject his rule, those citizens, and we now know that to be the nation of Israel in his day, they will have no option for them but eternal death, but judgment for their unbelief. As I said earlier, this is not the moment of the great white throne judgment. That moment awaits after Christ's ruling on earth for a thousand years, when all unbelievers of all time are brought before him, their books are opened, their deeds are judged, and because without faith they are found to be unrighteous, they will be thrown into the lake of fire at that moment. This, on the other hand, is the moment described in chapter 19, I believe, where those who are, rain, who are saying we will not be ruled over by Christ at the moment of his return are put to death in his return. Again, you can read that in chapter 19. These are largely the forces of the Antichrist arrayed against Jerusalem and ready to conquer Christ if he were to appear. The very same that he slays by the word of his mouth. That is the moment I believe is described here. You could also see it as somewhat symbolic of the fact that all unbelievers will be destroyed. I mean, you can certainly read that into the text as well. So Luke moves now into this final part of the gospel as we end tonight. I just want to make the note as we see this transition. He sets you up very nicely for what to expect next. Jesus is the king. He will rule in his kingdom, though it will not be set up in this moment. It awaits a future moment. It is going to be left to others in the meantime to build that kingdom in the hearts of men, one believer at a time, and to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. And that those who are called into this mission are to be held accountable for their work in answering that calling. And those who reject the king are going to suffer his wrath. And that's how Luke sets up the rest of the, uh, the remaining chapters of his gospel. As we see later through chapter 19 and onward, the confrontations with the Pharisees will become increasingly pointed, increasingly um, uh, dangerous. 
And the conspiracy against him will grow, culminating, as you know, in his death. That's where we're going. That's a lot of that kind of teaching now in the remaining chapters of Luke as we head to the inevitable end. Uh, That is all I have for tonight. I pray that as we go out from here and as I end the teaching and prayer tonight, I I will pray that we will have the, the courage and the motivation to go out in answer to the call that's on all of us. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray our hearts are right before You. For all those who gather in this room now, Father, for those who may hear this message at some point in the future, I pray for each of them, Father. You know who they are. I lift them up to You and I pray that even as we talk about rewards and a service, an opportunity to serve with You and and to reign with You, Father, we all remember that all of those opportunities are predicated on a belief in You as the King, as our Lord and Savior, as the one way to know the Father. And understanding that, remembering that, Father, it it compels us to pray out for those who've heard this message and for those who would hear it in the future. May they know the truth that You are the Messiah. May they feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on their heart. May they recognize that a call requires a response. May they have the courage to respond. And in that response, Father, giving You glory and praising You for the work You've done in their heart, I pray then they could join in the work we all share and even now to build your kingdom, to witness to you the truth of the gospel, to be your arms and feet and hands and eyes and ears, Father, to be the body of Christ in this world so that the work you would do where your presence is possible physically now could just as easily be done through us by your power. I pray we'd have the desire to step out in that way. And may this study be a very small part of that mission, Father, and may the fruit it produces in the hearts of those who hear it be magnified by the power of your Holy Spirit. May May they go out as well in service to you. And Father, I pray for safe travel home and for the week to come, all that our plans, Father, might be according to your will and may it be your will as well that we would return next week to study again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.